Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Steve Finland. Steve is the CEO of the Wine Society, a cooperative with a passion for producing good wine and fostering positive and ethical relationships with growers. Steve, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Yeah, many thanks, Scott. I'm delighted to join. It's fantastic uh, having you, and thanks ever so much for taking the time to come onto the programme. Now, Steve, the purpose of this podcast series really is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you, because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think it does, and it's a very broad, it's a very very broad title. But um, you know, over, over the years, I felt um, you know there are a number of words that come to mind when we talk about leadership, and actually, uh, unusually, one of those is followership. I'm quite a um, fan of Professor Robert Coffey, formerly at the London Business School, who uh, wrote quite a lot on the subject of followership. I think leadership and followership go together because, for me, leadership is about um, you know, being authentic, but equally it's about combining all of the resources at your disposal where the sum of the parts is much greater. Uh, the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. And, uh, you know, that requires a level of um, inspiration to that organisation, a level of direction setting, a level of strategic direction setting so that people uh, uh, can not only be led to a goal, but they can also follow to a goal as well. I think that's um, absolutely right. Um, it's essentially leading from the front sometimes um, in a way, isn't it? And really leading by example. And that's an incredibly important part of being able to take people with you, which is an incredibly important aspect of uh, leadership there, as you say. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the recent um, uh, situation that we find ourselves in makes that even more important because, uh, you know, one start is a relatively small business, but of course we're now dispersed with uh, the entire team either working from home or working in our warehouse facilities. And, um, you know, without that sense of both leading from the front, but equally recognising and understanding the um, individuality that everybody brings to the organisation, I think those two things together, when you're working in a virtual environment, enable the business to keep marching forward in, uh, uh, in a straight line. In a way, creativity of individuals is encouraged, but equally, that there's a strong sense of uh, a strong sense of direction, and um, you know, it's a huge learning from the, the, the current times that uh, you know, within that, um, a huge amount of time even easy to be spent uh, uh, communicating effectively. Mm, and it certainly poses a challenge for leaders, doesn't it? Maintaining positive communication virtually and from a distance. But I think when people do take on their own leadership and have to be a little bit independent and sort of get on with things themselves, if they've been given the confidence to do so, I mean, it's a really important part of their development, isn't it? Letting them get on with it, letting them go out to their comfort zone. And some leaders are finding that this period as a time of adversity is really bringing out the best in the people around them as well. Oh, I would definitely, uh, I would definitely agree with that, and uh, you know, certainly uh, in terms of um, you know how I think about my own leadership style, where uh, you know I've, I've, I've always been somewhat experimental and always been deeply curious, and uh, you know, as a consequence for that, I think that filtered through the organisation, and it's absolutely crucial at the moment because uh, um, 
you know, often people are finding their own solutions to their own problems. They don't always work, uh, uh, but often they do. And, uh, you know, we found a really positive sense of energy, dynamism, creativity, problem solving as a consequence. And it's really interesting that you talk about your leadership style being quite experimental because leadership, um, especially in business, in many ways is trial and error, isn't it? Leaders do have to undergo that experience of trying one or two things, maybe not getting everything right. But then when there are setbacks, just learning from those and embracing that as an experience. Yeah, I mean, I learned when I was uh, working for the American clothing company Gap, um, the word fail fast. I've not heard it before. Um, you know, I'm going back many years now. And, uh, as you know, it's become a little bit of a, a, a mantra for leadership at the moment. But uh, having said that, I think as leaders, we've got to have the courage to genuinely do it and uh, recognise that, uh, you know, maybe it's fine um, as long as you learn from it. If it goes wrong, then you pick it up and you redirect it. But, um, you know, what I've found uh, uh, with experimentation is that it helps it helps to develop a slightly different culture in the business where the business begins to look for its own solutions to problems. Um, you know, having been a retailer for uh, more years than I care to remember, 35 plus years, um, I've been struck over those 35 years how uh, retail organisations, uh, particularly over the last 10 years, have uh, almost sought deliberately to be just like everybody else. Um, you know, so good. You know, there are supply chain cost benefits to be got. You know, there's only one way of doing it. Whereas, you know, I find myself now at a mutual organisation with very strong uh, values. But equally, it sort of helped me as a leader to uh, relearn the value of differentiation and focusing on those things that make you unique and make you special. And I think there are a lot of retail organisations. You know, in the recent uh, 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 past, that have really struggled to define themselves. Mm, and I think it is important to have that um, individuality, as you say there, Steve. And uh, we've talked an awful lot there about um, your leadership style and your approach to that. But what would you say have been some of the influences behind that sort of style and approach that you've taken on? Oh, I think um, a, a, a whole variety. I mean, I take a huge amount of inspiration from uh, the, the, the people I work with. Um, and of course, um, you know the, the, the bosses or the business leaders that um, you know that I've worked under, you know, right the way back to the beginning of my career when uh, I started with Marks and Spencer while it was still uh, um, in the hands of the family, just before it became a, a, a PLC. Um, and uh, uh, I think you can take. I don't think there's any. You know, I don't think it's as, as wise or it's sensible to uh, you know try and uh, imitate. Um, great leaders that you've worked with, but having said that, I think there are you know there are things that you can things that you can take and add and build along the way, and I think that's both true in terms of leaders, but also true in terms of the types of business that you work for. Mm. You know, I mean, I've been lucky to spend a large part of my career working outside the UK, so looking at American styles, or looking at European or Asian styles. I've worked for family business in Clarks. And, uh, you know, now working at a sort of mutual cooperative business. And they all give you something that, uh, um, you know, you can take, as well as working for, you know, great, well-recognized leaders like, you know, Stuart Rose at Marks & Spencer, Lord Rader at Marks & Spencer, or Mickey Drexler at Gap. You know, all terrifically inspirational leaders and all of whom you can uh, take something from and uh, uh, develop your own style. Absolutely. Um 
experience and people of influence such as that um, are um, hugely um, inspiring and have a huge effect on uh, the leadership styles that people uh, take on um, for sure. Um, if we think about the future now and maybe people who are aspiring to begin leadership roles themselves, what sort of advice based upon the experiences that you have would you have to give them? I think um, the first piece of advice would be to stay true to yourself. I think we all have very solid foundations and there's great temptation sometimes to move away from those foundations. And I think at that point, then leadership becomes a little less natural. Um, and I think the other element, uh, you know, I think we're certainly living in a data-driven world at the moment. And, uh, you know, often we included the comfort in data and truth in order to make decisions. But, uh, you know, the old adage of the art and the science, I think, remains as true today as it always have, has done. And, um, you know, I think some of the advice would be to uh, uh, back yourself, back the hunches that you take. Um, you know, we all take hunches based on the experience that we've got. And again, they don't always go the way that you want them to. But um, I think uh, blending the art with the science usually leads to a, a better, more authentic result. Do you think that maybe people within the younger generation are a little bit more afraid to take even measured risks and try new things due to a fear of failure, in a sense? I, I, I definitely know. I mean, I see huge creativity um, in uh, you know the younger people in our organisation, and um, you know sometimes. I don't think it's the individual. I think it's the uh, corporate culture that can come, sometimes stifle that. I think given the opportunity, um, you know, and actually you have to develop it, I think, within uh, your own teams and your own people, is to uh, allow people freedoms, um, you know, within a framework, but uh, uh, freedoms nonetheless in order to be able to explore their own creativity or their own um, their own potential. And uh, sometimes corporate talks can be quite stifling. It can be. Um, I think sometimes it can be perceived as a little bit cutthroat at times, whereas sometimes maybe when it comes to creativity, as you say, it maybe needs somebody as a little bit of a mentor to younger people, especially just to give them a little bit of free reign to sort of push the boundaries a little bit and break out of their comfort zone. Yeah, I mean, we all want we, we, we all want positive outcomes from our uh, uh, from our businesses, and you know, often that can encourage us to uh, uh, behave in a slightly more cutthroat way. But I do think there are different journeys in order to be able to get to the solution. And um, you know, I mean, I'm a firm believer that uh, um, you know we spend a lot of time at work, so we really ought to be able to enjoy. And that's not just my enjoyment; it's the enjoyment across the whole business. And I think being given a little bit more freedom, a little bit more flexibility, um, as long as people understand what the organisation as a whole is trying to achieve and the journey and the mission that we're uh, uh, that we're on. Um, you know, there are many, many different ways to get there. And I think sometimes uh, having a little bit more patience with that can pay dividends. It certainly can. And that, and coming into that as well is uh, this idea that maybe one certain leadership approach doesn't necessarily work for every member of a team. Sometimes a leader has to be able to adapt their approach with people, their people management to get the best out of those around them as well. Yeah, I think that level of um, adaptability is, uh, uh, is, is really clear. And, I, uh, and again, you know, if I come back to the element that says that, you know, we all have a sort of core foundation um, and, uh, you know, the closer we are to that foundation, the much more likely we are to be flexible and adaptable with our style as well. And it's not always easy. Um, 
you know, again, if we think about the sort of current circumstance, um, thinking about the qualities of leadership, then uh, courage and resilience come to mind at the moment in terms of uh, uh, really um, you know, having to think very, very carefully through a journey which has no, uh, uh, really has no script. And, um, you know, again, that can lead to slightly more controlling behaviour or slightly more cutthroat behaviour and so on. And, uh, you know, as leaders, I think we've got to have that flexibility. We've got to have the adaptability, but we've also got to have the ability to be able to bring the best out of our people. And as we've said, times like the one that we're going through now, times of difficulty, that breeds that resilience, doesn't it? Going on that journey, all pulling together as a team to try and get the best outcome, even in a challenging situation. Well, I think it does. And I think uh, um, equally, um, you know, that element of uh, sort of force measure, having to redesign systems, processes, having to disperse your workforce, having to uh, deal with, um, you know, um, very difficult situations in um, the supply chain and, uh, you know, for us right back at source with winemakers um, means that uh, uh, things that would normally take uh, quite a long time are getting done in uh, hours and days. Um, so I think there's also plenty that we can learn from from this as well in terms of how to take our businesses forward. And if we think about what the future does hold for our businesses before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do give me an idea, Steve, of what you envision for yourself and for the Wine Society over the next 12 months and getting through the COVID situation, but also maybe what your ambitions are for beyond the pandemic as well once we're through the other side. Yeah, I think, um, um, I think uh, inevitably, um, you know, the current situation means that we've got to evaluate the uh, strategies that we had in place. You know, we've got to think about, um, you know, what's likely to happen over the next year, 18 months, um, thanks to the economy and to, uh, you know, the challenges that we're going to face in the workplace. So, uh, um, you know, we're thinking about those in the context of what does that mean for the wine society. And, um, you know, I guess uh, the mutual business model sort of lends itself quite well to uh, these times because, um you know, we had the opportunity to uh, really re-secure, and that might be the wrong word, but uh, really sort of go back to uh, uh, the quality of the relationship that we've got with our supply base. And, um, you know, the longevity and quality of those relationships means that we are able to do some really quite interesting things with our products and uh, with wines. Um, and uh, think about how we bring those to market in uh, a slightly different way it enables us to um, you know, communicate with our members because we can only sell to uh, the members of the Wine Society in a slightly different way, but equally take on board those things that have worked incredibly well. I mean, normally speaking, in normal times, we have a very active tastings and events program. All of that is virtual at the moment. Um, and uh, uh, I, I can well see in a year, 18 months, two years' time that um, it will still be virtual. <laughs> And we'll be uh, uh, in a position to uh, uh, sort of continue to do some of the things that we've been doing during this lockdown period as well. But, um, you know, our business is uh, quite stable. Um, fortunately, wine is a commodity that uh, people want at the moment. And uh, uh, actually what it means for us is that we can sort of perhaps more easily navigate our way forward than uh, businesses that are, 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 are finding, you know, they're going um, much, much tougher than we are. 
But uh, on the same basis, we've also got to uh, continue to develop and modernise the business as the world's oldest wine club. Actually, a number of our systems, processes and operations um, uh, require modernisation. So, you know, we can't just stop and tread water. We've got to keep on uh, uh, developing and innovating in the process of re-platforming our website, which is being done, again, by a virtual team. Um, so uh, I think it becomes a question of saying, uh, yes, we need to go back and revisit the strategy. But having said that, that's not starting the strategy with a blank sheet of paper. It's about making sure that we do it continuously and maybe with slightly different time horizons um, uh, uh, than we would have envisaged previously. Um, so uh, uh, for the Wine Society, the journey will be one of uh, modernization and uh, steady but modest growth. Um, and then for me personally, yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply committed to uh, seeing this modernization journey, uh, modernization journey through. And um, you know, I've always sort of had an eye to the future in terms of uh, um, you know what I would like to do next. But actually, for once, um, I'm, uh, I'm not looking too far ahead personally. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, actually, in terms of uh, my ambitions, I want to uh, use this opportunity both to focus on the business that I'm in, but also to uh, add to my experience and over the next two or three years decide uh, um, you know, what life looks like for me as I uh, uh, start to uh, get into my 60s. <laughs> Mm, certainly seems um, to be the case that there's a great deal of um, ambition there, Steve. It's remarkable to see how business is continuing to innovate despite all the uncertainty at the moment, simply because um, it has to. And I think even though we are just about out of time on the programme today, it would be fantastic in future to perhaps have you back on the programme and revisit this when we start to see those modernisation strategies really take hold and just catch up on how the wine society is getting on as well. But for now, it's been a really insightful experience and an absolute pleasure having you on the, the programme today, Steve. I have to say and i cannot thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the listeners benefit it's been wonderful well thank you very much scott and thank you for uh, uh, asking me to share some insights it's been fun it's likewise it's been um, an incredibly fun experience uh, Stephen. do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime as well great thank you very much that was Steve Finland, the CEO of the Wine Society. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, a former England captain, Sir Andrew is one of only three captains to have won the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. And he is also the England cricket captain with the second highest amount of test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew and that's coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know Andrew you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus dress who gave me that nickname oh. it was actually mark butcher 
Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd, broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of 
well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. So after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. 
um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred, not without its critics. So I should, and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience. Exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask why do we need the hundred as well? Uh, well, so the hundred is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.